lost my train of thought. This is the awkward silence bit. Well, no, yes, you have to have it one, yeah, at least one. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is awkward. Silence. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with James Aylward, and he is the SVP, the head of data products at Pluralsight. And he leads a really interesting team there that is dedicated to continuous discovery, um, which leads to continuous delivery. And so today we're going to talk about how you kind of systematize creating these continuous insights to ship deliberately and with intention across a variety of autonomous teams. So thanks so much, James, for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. I'm, I'm really pumped to be here. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, so lay the, lay the background for us. So you're leading this team and you've really made this continuous discovery a hugely important part of how you ship product at Pluralsight. So why is that the case and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, so I think there's, um, there's a bunch of different elements within that. The key overall drivers, we're looking at single item flow efficiency. So how do we get units of value as quickly as we can to our customers. And that, from an engineering viewpoint, this is where a sort of continuous delivery was built from, was how do we continuously deliver code as and when we've, we've developed it? Um, and in order to do that, you really need a flow of continuous discovery too. You need to be able to identify customer pain points and work out ways to, you know, make those better and also work out what opportunities there are for us as an experience to help with our overarching mission. And for us, that's to democratize um, technology skills um, around the world. So we have our North Star there and we have the sort of the themes behind how we deliver. Um, and that's where we've made this overall framework of direct discovery in within Pluralsight, which was um, built largely by Nate Walkingshaw, um, the chief experience officer. And we enable that um, throughout the organization in order to help us scale. So we, we have a way of doing it, right? So it's a, it's a broad framework of building product that gets value as quickly as we can. We've built that with intention and really focused on our practices to, to enable scale. But it's also with the teams don't have to have a whole conversation about how do we, how do we build they can really focus on the needs of the user and get to um, what, we, what we're really driving at, which is shipping value. So within my world, we have six autonomous teams that are small autonomous groups. We call them product experience teams that um, consist of a product manager, a UX a designer or two, um, front end um, and full stack um, devs. We've got data scientists where, where appropriate and machine learning engineers, and they're supported by DevOps people and product marketing um, professionals as well. So these small groups can push to production all day long, and they do. And they build um, experiences that, you know, there's not a steering committee or they don't have to seek approval through me. There's not a chain of PowerPoints that they need in order to, to launch something. Um, they, they have the full autonomy to, to ship production. So that's kind of how it sets, sets up from the, the high level. Um, critical to this is the culture 
we've built around the teams and Pluralsight has developed um, quite intentionally. So we have a, a vision of what we want to achieve in the world and that's to democratize technology skills. And it like that, that seems so, I don't know, so succinct and, but that's the beauty of it, right? So every single decision we make um, trickles down from that overarching mission. Um, and once you've, you've identified that and, and people can buy into it and see it, it, everything else just strangely falls into line. Um, yeah, it can feel messy on a day-to-day basis, but we know where we're going. And um, we had that as an overall vision, but we're also trying to, to hit a goal for where we're going for 2022. And then we back in through an OKR process to where we want to be this quarter. So the teams kind of have an idea of an objective and they work out what key results they want to be able to drive in order to meet and measure that objective. And it's up to them to create with possibility um, to that objective. So everything was with, within the team's um, power and span of control. And that's the way we love it, right? So we want the team that's closest to the customer to be able to make that decision and direction and, and build. From a practical standpoint, how much like variance or um, different ideas get explored uh, to reach some of those objectives, right? So, uh, you know, objective A and a couple key results that align to it. Do you have a pretty good sense of like the types of ideas the team's considering to impact those key results and, and help achieve that metric? Or is it is it truly pretty open-ended and they're going to go off and do that discovery as part of the process and they might come back with, you know, ideas you hadn't even considered but but seem really aligned with, with what they're tasked to do? Yeah, so, I mean... The reason we were able to confidently enable these teams is that the directed discovery process really sort of, you know, outlines the methodology or the step-by-step process through which we achieve that um, understanding of whether our going in position was actually the right one. So, and the going in position is often biased, right? So we we ta- have a takeaway. We think we we know the answer, um, but more often than not, we we realize quite quickly what we thought was a good idea wasn't um and that's because we talked to the customer right so we within the the first step of that like after we've you know we've set our vision we, we understand our objective the first step is really to understand you know which one of our personas do we want to um target this product for and then we go off and talk to people in that in that persona group so whether that's learners or technology leaders or a t- certain type of learner you know we have differences in, in behavior between structured and unstructured learning. So in, in novice and expert learners have totally different methodologies of how they learn. And that's actually, you know, we've derived that from inside, from talking with customers over the year and also observing our um, click, click through traffic and, and looking at it from a, a, both a quantitative and a qualitative viewpoint. So once we've identified like what type of learner and, and which group and, and are they novice or expert or whatever group we're looking for, we go and, and talk to them. You know, we, we have voice of the customer segments and and depends on how big the feature is or how certain we are, but um, we're always talking to customers all day long. So that's the first step, really understanding the problem. And then we prototype, you know, like we're trying to build an experience that helps us learn. And our rate of learning is never greater than when we start prototyping, right? So when we can actually show our intended um to customer group what we're what we've got in mind and be able to um, derive insight from that and build out you know a synthesis of our learnings that builds into um, something that eventually will be sort of eighty percent confident that consumers will will like and that's our that's our internal gating mechanism to to work out whether we want to build now 
that crucially in that prototyping stage doesn't mean we're not building code and we often are and particularly with data products like so with with data science it's very difficult to sort of do that on a paper-based approach or a you know envision sort of sketch um, we need to actually make some of the hook up some of the data and we are fortunate blessed to work with some of the, the greatest data scientists i've ever worked with in my career here that can build prototypes really quickly um, to be able to you know uh, prototype a, a system that can autom auto automatically recommend to you what the next best course is or be able to um, look at the various tags in a you know in a transcript from a course and be able to identify the key the key part of the course that we need not not the whole course but which bit do you actually want to look, look at um, so they can build the actual prototypes and then of course we put um, some level of low fidelity ux on top of that and be able to identify what our key research topics or research themes are for that prototype once we feel like we've got something that we're 80 percent sure has has value to the customer then we then we move into the build stage and that's more of a you know a build um to earn i guess rather than build to learn um but if, you know it, it, that's kind of a little bit more um i guess merchant oriented than we're looking for really we're trying to um, help everybody learn so we're building to, to help everybody else learn so we can then release to production and we do it on a pre-alpha which is internal people having a go at a, at a feature and then an alpha which might be anywhere like anywhere from one percent to five maybe 15 percent of traffic um if that goes well then it goes up to um what we call beta which is sort of half the traffic and then then we go to general release so it goes out to everybody but even in that process we, we can learn and if if the metrics that we're looking for start going the wrong way. We can pull it back, understand what went wrong, and then and then identify whether there was an issue with with whatever it is. But we'll um, add that to our learnings as we as we build out to production. But after we're in production, we do this quantitative analysis. So this is our we're measuring our customers' happiness, measuring their engagement. Are they actually doing what we set out to do? What our, what our hypothesis was the the key result we wanted to move. Um, are they doing that? And is that working in that? Um, you know, in, in production as we as we hoped. And the last thing is we're constantly iterating. So these teams are, are sweating on these results and looking through them and, and working out, hey, this went exactly right or wrong, and then uh, reaching out and talking to customers again. The cycle just begins anew. But it's that, you know, adding that continuous discovery to the continuous delivery approach from engineering that makes um, director discovery so it's such a powerful um, process. So there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So the first thing that's striking is that you, it sounds like you have a very set kind of framework with steps that, you know, follow a particular sequence. Um, I'm going to make the assumption that those steps take, uh, can take a long time or a little bit of time, depending on what you're building. Um, do you always follow each and every one of those steps each time? Um, is that kind of consistent, whatever you're building? Yeah, so, um, you know, like it's, it depends, everything in product development sort of depends, but we're very rigid on talking to customers, we'll, we'll always do that, and pretty much, and more and more it's becoming easier and easier to do each step, so there's an assumption there that it takes a long time, it really doesn't have to, um, and depends on the level of the feature or the size, the impact we're trying to make on any given, given feature, so yeah, we do throttle it 
up and down depending on certainty and, and um, issues. But what we're really trying to do is get that value out there quickly so we can learn. So how do we de-risk that or, or, or make that um, into the, the smallest unit of value so that we can free up that team to, to push as needed? Sounds like you're talking to um, customers several times throughout that process. When you said, you know, we, we were talking to customers, I'm curious who on the team that might be that's doing the talking to customers. Is it a particular role or is it kind of everybody on the team or does it depend on stage? What's that look like? So that's a great question. So um, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, that's that's also really special about Pluralsight. It's, it's, yeah, often that's the UX lead leading it or the, the product person, but we never do. We always have an engineer in the room with every and it might be a different engineer or a different data scientist or, or what have you, but there is always someone like that in the room when we're um, when we are doing voice the customer stuff because we want that whole team to have context. And the way the way I try to coach my teams is, hey, you're a you're a pool side experience person, right? It doesn't you have a special skill in the the fact that you you know you're a software developer, or a data scientist, or, or whatever you come from. But first and foremost. You know, you're an experienced person first, and how do, how do you identify um, those needs and prioritize and 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 ship value as as what makes sense for that team? And through that, and this goes to um, diversity in the team, and that's, I mean, a we pride ourselves on you know the sort of diversity that people think of when they think of diversity, but we're also thinking very heavily about diversity of thought too. So, and I see this within my leadership team as well as having. Um, people with different backgrounds and different disciplines brings a very healthy level of conflict to the team. So it's not, you know, when people say conflict, it's not about being an extreme conflict where it's everyone's yelling and, and it's horrible. It's it's about, hey, I have this idea. I also have this other idea or this other way of executing on that idea. Have you considered this? No. Have you considered that? Yes. And and then what comes out is a much stronger solution at the end of it. Um, by ensuring that everybody has some depth of knowledge and feel for the customer problem in the first place, that conversation is rooted in um, the customer lens. You um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you have um, researchers on your teams or is a UX research or design research or product research, is that a function within the company or is that distributed across design? Yeah, like so we, I call them, you know, like I, I... they're really full stack designers, you know, so they do the whole thing. So from idea research to implementation and I love it. Like I, I actually feel like there's a, um, you know, like what I've admired over engineering for a while is like in the last 10, 15 years, it's been, you know, it used to be, Hey, this guy's a Java engineer, but engineers don't like that, man. They, <laughs> engineers are engineers. They'll work it out. And I'm seeing like within Pluralsight, uh, Hey, I'm not a UX researcher. I'm not a, you know, a UX designer. I'm not like, you know, just one type of like conceptual designer or whatever. Like I am a full stack designer, you know, like I, I can understand and build and, you know, create a possibility all the way through that, that chain, which I love. I mean, I think that's, that's what we all do. Right. It's, it's, and, you know, I, I try to encourage that sort of thinking on, on every, on everybody. Yeah. You might not, you might have more depth in an area, and please use the um, expertise of other people who do have more depth when you come up to a skills challenge. Um, but don't be afraid of it. And there's one there's one other element on that is we have a really well defined design system. So it comes you know sort of a 
a central design system where everybody can pull assets from and, and icons and all the rest of it. So we don't have to have that continual conversation about what sort of design should we use. We, we all know, like, and then we can pull and, and use the parts and put them into, you know, experiences as they make sense. With so many folks being basically full stack, either engineers or designers, some folks have more depth in certain areas and kind of rely on each other. But how have you empowered different folks to conduct? I know you do a variety of different methods in terms of qualitative usability, testing, interviews, prototypes, um, the quant stuff, A-B testing, a variety of methods. How do you create and expand those skills across you know, these, these functions and these teams? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we, <laughs> it's kind of, we, we, we do it, right? So we, yeah. we, we live what we do, which is mm-hmm. um, a culture of learning. So we're trying to inspire that in other con- uh, countries. Yeah, we are inspiring that in other countries, <laughs> but we're also inspiring other companies um, is how do you bring that together? So, you know, we, we have the product sort of guilds and things that, that you know, can present what they've learned um, to to other product people or anybody who's, who's interested in. Um, same thing with our architects, same thing with, so we have these sort of communities of practice um, that share best practice across. Uh, and as you know, bits of the company become good at certain areas, um, other teams just naturally seem to want to be able to use the same technology in, the, in their aspects as well, or what they're, they're working on. Um, you know, A-B testing is a a good example like we're, we're just you know we're bringing that competency um you know to plural site and there's been somewhat level of it but it's increasing um over time and we want to be able and a lot of the teams are really trying to work out how to use a b testing effectively um with the same guardrail that hey a b testing can lead to a lot of um what do you call it sort of you know the optimization of the, of the local maxima rather than looking at what the possibility is across the broad structure but if we maintain our muscle in, you know, voice of the customer understanding directly from the customer and then also look at how that reacts in an A-B test, um, you know, when we get to a, um, to a, customer, a customer confirmation testing process, then, you know, I think we're okay. But it's, we've, we've married that qualitative skill with the quantitative ability of A-B and we're using it in, you know, two or three bounded contexts to start off with, and then everybody will start picking that up. So it becomes a real, like, again, it's like, while we set up really, um, I guess, you know, defined um, architecture in terms of people and systems, we're also, there's just a whole bunch of organic stuff that happens as well. That's perfectly fine. We totally encourage that for teams to help other teams out. Yeah. My, uh, my latest pet peeve has been when people, uh, at a very abstract level, we'll like talk about like what is a product manager versus a UX designer, and they'll do like the Venn diagram of where they overlap and where they're different. And it's like, well, it depends on the team, right? Like if you have an autonomous team and you have a UX designer who hates, you know, facilitating interviews, and the product manager loves it, then for that team, that's probably the arrangement. And if you have the opposite on another team, they probably do it that way. Um, I always think of uh, the metaphor that always comes to mind is like basketball teams where. There's going to be some general trends where the tall guy is going to stand near the hoop and probably rebound a lot, and the shorter, faster guy is going to dribble and shoot more. Um, but if the tall guy's open and wants to shoot like a jump shot, like, and he's good at it, then that team should do that, right? And like, um, I think that's a big benefit of the autonomous teams is you don't have to spend all this time 
you know, haggling over these like crisp and rigid role definitions, you can just actually let the teams work together. And based on different strengths and interests, that team can operate a little different than the other team. And that's probably forever better for everyone. They probably get better results. They're probably happier. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we really hold psychological safety to be a big part of that. And that means being able to have your own ideas and be up and be able to challenge each other in a really respectful way. Um, and we do a lot of work on team health. So we've actually, to your point, JH, we've had like, we've got a great functioning team at the moment that um, two of them really love to battle things out and argue over things, like on a whiteboard and in a respectful but animated way. And there's other two people on that team that don't like being involved in that. And <laughs> what they do is the two that love to argue it out go into a you know, into a huddle room, argue it out, come out with a solution and then present that to the rest of the team and the rest of the teams, like, then they provide their conflict to it or, or whatever the, the, the other, their opinions are to it. Um, but it, I, I can't believe that level of self-awareness and, and team health. So that's, that's part of our management structure is to be able to help teams self-diagnose who's good at what and what sort of style works for who, whom and, and be able to mix and match and put in, um, you know, features like that um, to be able to, to be able to navigate through that. Um, autonomy requires a lot of trust, as you've talked about, and working together in small teams to make things happen requires a lot of interpersonal skills, whether that be two people locking themselves to whiteboard it out <laughs> and to ignoring or whatever that might look like in different teams. Is there a particular profile or set of traits that you hire for to make some of those things possible yeah definitely and we're very very prescriptive on this it's the we do not hire for cultural fit like we find that if you hire for cultural fit you get all the people that are the same and that just destroys our idea of diversity of thought when we hire on a values basis we're looking for people who can live up to the core values that sort of i spoke about before now you can live up to those core values in many many different ways and we actually really respect and want people that have as many different ways of living that core value as they possibly can. So um, that's how we hire. So it's, it's not about cultural fit. It's not whether they'll fit in here. It's whether they can, you know, whether people can hold those values to be true. Um, so, you know, that, that leads to a lot of different approaches to, to how that works. Um, and we're also looking for when, when people, when candidates are coming in here, we're looking for, do, can, are they inspired by the mission? Um, because if they're not really inspired by democratizing technology skills, then, you know, there's plenty of other places out there that are hiring right now. Um, they might not be a great fit for us. So we're also then, then it's the things that you, you just admire in, in most candidates. It's like, you know, can they, are they self-started? Can they, um, you know, can they communicate well? Um, and that doesn't mean they have have a huge grasp of English. It means can they sort of talk and understand from, you know, an emotional and, um, technology te technical view um with their fellow team um and then we go into you know skills like team team skills and we're actually looking at yeah it's it's often easy to see a superstar within a team and say oh that that person's amazing what what we really value as well is the people who may not have the best skills and may not be the loudest in the room but when you put them on a, a team that team seems to do better 
So how do we value that? How do we identify those team builders who just seem to make everything go so much smoother? Because those people are incredibly valuable as well. Um, so if we can if we can identify and celebrate them, that helps the whole. You know that that raises um, all the boats. You know, like it, those people multiply the impact of of the people who are sort of acknowledged superstars. Um, it's it's those who are really good at making that that team that team work. Um, it seems like this is easy to believe in and go with when it's going well. Are there any like stories in the company's history or like lore of, you know, a time where this blew up, but you stuck with it anyways, or you coming into it as a new person and maybe being, you know, at first a little like feeling it out and maybe seeing a team make a misstep or something like that. Um, do you guys kind of like maybe hold those up as a, as a learning example? Or I, I assume like, you know, somebody shipped a bug or something has happened, right. That didn't go perfectly to plan. Um, how do you guys use that to like make it maybe more resilient instead of like changing course? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest problems occur when teams don't ship, you know, like when for one reason or another, they're not producing stuff. So like a bug is one thing and we can pull that back in pretty quickly. So it doesn't really, because of the, again, because of systems architecture, because of the release schedule, all the rest of it, kind of metrics. Um, we're not so afraid of that. It's, it's, it's when the teams don't ship that they seem to have, you know, breakdowns for some reason, or the, you know, the, the emotional intelligence is becomes a lot harder and the, you know, we get out of that healthy conflict zone and into the non-healthy conflict zones. Um, that's when I've seen problems. And when a team isn't shipping, that's when I'm looking at, at my leadership team and, and myself to say, Hey, like what, what's the, what's the hold up? <laughs> you know, like, and it's not, it's not about pushing anything. It's about, there has to be some unit uh, of learning that we can understand from, from building in, in production at some point. Um, and usually that, that can come down to a confidence level or people don't sort of appreciate that, that we get it. Like from a, from a leadership viewpoint, we're, we're totally behind them. And, and if, they, if there is a mistake or they screw up, we, we have trust in our process to understand that that will happen um, pretty early in the system. Um, and, you know, also to the Microsoft services, we don't have many single points of failure. So there really is a good resilience in the, um, in the process, but, um, yeah, things happen and it's just like anybody else. And, um, we react. And the other thing is that when something happens in a, in an area, um, that team reacts on it pretty quickly because they feel a, a real level of responsibility again, um, to make it work. And it's not like there's some other QA team or a problem management team it's yeah we have devops has it's all a notification process but once that thing's identified and we need to fix it that team gets on it and because and you know it's i, I don't think it's ever been me asking them to it's it's they jump on it and they're doing it before i even know about it half the time or other people do it then again it's pretty rare because of the way we've um, we've set it up so um yeah and at the end of the day we, we try and iterate and build on that process and get the thing more resilient and work out how to make it better and, and, and uh, more reliable and um, work out how we can remove single points of failure as, as they arise. Very good. Anything we didn't ask that you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're, um, we're hiring here in Boston and, and Utah <laughs> and um, yeah, and we want to look for the right people who are inspired by that message and um yeah, we're always interested to talk and, and we have plenty of meetups and, and ways to get to know Pluralsight better. So um, that's it. And I'm, I've sounded like, a, I feel like I might've like oversold it or anything, but it is, it's just, 
you know, it feels like a really special place. Cool. I'm going to just add user interviews, also hiring since <laughs> my own here while we're at it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>